0: Good morning, Memphis. Thank you for spending some of this hot and humid Saturday morning with me. I'm Sana and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. Every Saturday morning, you know, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and, of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of iced coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. By now, you've probably heard the words critical race theory. Elected officials, academics, political pundits, and even military generals have weighed in on the issue. But what exactly is it, and why has it become a center of debate now? According to an analysis from Education Week, 25 states have considered legislation or other steps to limit how race and racism can be taught. So far, eight states have banned or limited the teaching of critical race theory or similar concepts through laws or administrative actions, and these bans largely address what can be taught inside K-12 classrooms. Here in Tennessee, Governor Bill Lee signed a bill into law that will restrict what public school teachers can discuss in Tennessee classrooms about racism, privilege, and unconscious bias. And this will go into effect this upcoming school year. And it allows the Tennessee Education Commissioner, Penny Schwinn, to withhold funds from schools and districts to talk more about critical race theory today i'm joined by dr earl fisher he is a fellow at the benjamin l hooks institute for social change at the university of memphis dr fisher's work focuses on african-american religious rhetoric contemporary rhetorical theory and black liberation theology welcome dr earl fisher
1: thank you dr suna laborn for having me and i can't believe you said iced coffee you know the (laughs) coffee is made to be drank hot uh I want to shout out the blackest coffee shop in Memphis and Shelby County Mug and Coffee where you can go get the pastor earl special and I hope that the owners would would uh put my check in the mail but now thanks for having me and when you said <laughs> when you read uh, that I do contemporary rhetorical theory i said you know what the initials for that would be crt
0: uh-oh,
1: so uh-oh. <laughs> people you know they need to know all other manifestations of crt yeah. oh
0: my goodness hold on though i i have to get back into this mug and coffee wait what is, is the dr Earl fisher special tell me yeah, something. the
1: pastor earl special is actually their uh brown sugar cinnamon caramel macchiato upside down so <laughs> i went there the first time and i just asked him to You know, what did they think uh, I would like? And I told them what I would usually get if I was like at Starbucks or something. And then they recommended that. And then I said, okay, so y'all got to rename that now. So now it's the Pastor Earl special. So, Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, my goodness. I did not know that it sounds delicious. I actually had a chance, because I'm not normally out in the White Haven area, but I had a chance to check it out, and I kid you not, the best Cortado in the city, I don't know what beans they are, well, I guess they're using their own beans, never mind, but (laughs) it was absolutely delicious, and I was like, I wish I lived closer to this area, or maybe I don't, because I would just be there every single day, so yes, coffee is meant to be enjoyed, hot, but in this heat, actually, I still do drink my hot coffee. I'm not actually a super fan of it I hot got
1: hot you confessing coffee. now. See, that's I know,
0: the, look, all my secrets. secrets coming out. Religious
1: rhetoric, secrets. baby, religious rhetoric got you confessing in here. I
0: know, confessing. Let's see, ooh, let's see what other truths we can get out today. <laughs> so we are here, we're talking about critical race theory. It seems like in the past few weeks, it's been, you know, in our news feed more consistently, mm-hmm. even though it really started With the 1619 Project, you know, ideas of critical race theory kind of being tossed around and, um, you know, a real opposition to it, Mm -hmm. even though it's kind of unclear if people know what critical race theory actually is.
1: Dr. Suna, I think it's clear that most people don't know what critical race theory is, and especially those who have been championing the bills, as you mentioned in your opening around critical race theory in halls of Congress all around the the country. It's clear that they don't really know what it is. I think you're right in so far as most of them associated with, uh, now tenured, tenured as of earlier this week. We're doing this on Saturday. I think this was Thursday or Wednesday when the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill announced that Nicole Mm Hannah-Jones, who helped to organize the 1619 Project is finally being granted tenure. So Mm -hmm. we salute that. But most people do associate it with that, or they associate it with folks like Ibram X. Kendi, who's a historian, or Robert D'Angelo because of some of their books that have come out more recently. But even as you were talking earlier about some of the origins of critical race theory or the rejections of it first, Critical race theory kind of starts in the 1980s. Most people don't know this, so they need to check out folks like Derrick Bell, especially especially his book the *Faces at the Bottom of a Well*. I think that's the foundational text for me for critical race theory. Obviously, Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, essay on intersectionality, and you know, there's some more. That, there's like a critical race theories reader now. Uh, even more recently, though, I think there are some articles that people could check out for like crash courses. And so at least a general synopsis is an article that came out um, on Wednesday of this week. So June 30th by a brother named Gary Peller. It's in Politico and it's an opinion piece that's titled I've Been a Critical Race Theorist for 30 years. Our opponents are just proving our point for us. Kimberly Crenshaw did an interview, I think it was with MSNBC or somebody like that on critical race theory and explains what it is and what it's not. That was on June the 22nd. But what I would want to lean into at least for a minute about the history or the historical trajectory of some of what I would call in my field, the rhetorics of critical race theory in this current iteration, Andre Johnson, who is also a communication professor at the University of Memphis, wrote an article on June the 23rd for Religion Dispatches. And it's entitled, where did white evangelicalism's hatred of critical race theory really Begin?" And I think it's important for people to check that out because, to the point that you made earlier about the relationship with religion and race and you know these uh, academic theories, what Andre Johnson is, is highlighting among other things is how the Southern Baptist Convention several years ago, prior to this current wave of popularism with the term critical race theory, they were already the, the white evangelical church was already in the process of trying to denounce and demonize critical race theory and calling it basically uh, inconsistent with um, the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. And I think many of them just don't uh, realize that Jesus of Nazareth was a black man, you know, a, a, a poor black, Palestinian Hebrew born to a single parent mother who got pregnant before she got married and most people have beef about who the father is and so you know I I just think that it's it's ironic it's tragic because of the way it plays out in people's lives and it's peculiar because we are having this conversation and one of the things that Pella points out is that um, the fact that we're having the conversation that the way, the way we are having it And the the, the fact that it has taken on the shape and the light that it has actually proves the efficacy of critical race theory.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's back up a little bit. So could you outline for our listeners what exactly is critical race theory? You kind of alluded to some scholars, Mm -hmm. um, but could you kind of like lay out what are the tenets of critical race theory?
1: So there's a lot of moving pieces with this and what I appreciate about Peller's work and even some of what Crenshaw would, would say in hers is that this is still uh, evolutionary theoretical framework, but you know as Pella was writing, it, it's first articulated in the 1980s It's a generation of scholars who confront this Uh, Racial power in universities that they were attending. And I would say more importantly, because if you think about Derrick Bell and his work, this is a law professor. So there's law schools trying to grapple with the inefficacies of civil rights legislation that had been passed in the 50s and the 60s. And they were wondering why Black folks had not made more of a structural and systemic advancement. Why were some of the numbers of the 60s still reflected in the 80s? And for those of us who have done uh, some of the more recent analysis, some of these same numbers of wealth inequity and, you know, joblessness and unemployment and the racial wealth gap and all of these things, they still seem to be consistent. So these law professors were trying to figure out what was missing. And Derrick Bell's work on uh, the faces at the bottom of the well, I think what's foundational for me in critical race theory is is what he calls the five rules of racial standing. The five Mm -hmm. rules of racial standing. And so the first rule is a rule that describes how in the courts of law litigants or people who are filing complaints or lawsuits trying to protect their personhood or their property if they are black and claiming racism, they don't have the same standing as the average citizen. So that's rule number one. You just have to recognize the inequity in the legal system first. The Mm -hmm. second rule Derrick Bell would say is that black people's complaints are discounted, but black victims of racism are less effective witnesses than white people are even though they are members of the oppressor class. So even when you're trying to advocate for racial equity, his argument in terms of the second rule of racial standing is knowing that white folks can argue on black folks behalf even better than black folks can argue even though white folks represent the oppressor class. And he's talking about how the phenomenon reflects a widespread assumption that blacks unlike whites can't be objective on racial issues mm-hmm. and will favor their own no matter what. and if anybody has been watching the developments this week regarding somebody's case being overturned, somebody's case who I refuse to mention right now because of my convictions about rape culture, you know, I mean, these things are, are on display in terms of like the complexity of them. The third rule that um, Derek Bell highlights in terms of the rules of racial standing is that few Black people will avoid the diminishment of racial standing and that most of our statements about the racial conditions will be diluted and our recommendations of other blacks are being taken with a grain of salt. And here's where I think what we are hearing and seeing and living into in terms of critical race theory today is front and center. This mm-hmm. third rule, Derek Bell says, the usual exception to this rule is the black person who publicly disparages or criticizes other blacks who are speaking or acting in ways that upset whites mm. and I, and if I was at the blackest church in Memphis Shelby County Abyssinian where I pastor everybody would be saying amen <laughs> <laughs> or heck yeah you know I, I want to say another word but I'm gonna keep pg-13 for your <laughs> podcast right they, they, they would amen that and so mm. this idea that if you can get a black person to puppet or articulate what Racially insensitive and bigoted white people will say all of a sudden that black person gets a special status, mm-hmm. which kind of leads into the fourth rule that that um, is, is is in Derrick Bell's foundational premise. And again, these are the rules that I think are at the heart of critical race theory. So Bell says that the fourth rule is when a black person or a group makes a statement or takes an action that the white community or vocal components thereof deem outrageous. That the latter will actively recruit Black folks to refute the statement or condemn the action, and that Black folks who respond to the call to condemnation receive superstanding status. Think Clarence Thomas being elected to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. by Ronald Reagan,
0: mm-hmm. and what
1: that was intended to rhetorically signify that Reagan somehow sided with Black folks and cared about the plight of Black people but also that Clarence Thomas was the super Negro. He was the ideal Negro, right? Because he was willing to articulate some of the same things that white bigots were articulating in terms of black respectability and black responsibility. And then the fifth rule for Derrick Bell is that true awareness requires an understanding of these rules and that as, as individuals understanding of these rules increases, there will be more and more instances where we can discern how they are at work in the world and we can use this knowledge and deploy it in ways to try to find remedies, but ultimately that we will come to grips with the fact that racism is permanent in the society and the structure. And so that's the foundational premises of critical race theory. Again, it's, it's law code stuff, which is amazing when you peel back the layers because the policies and, 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 the, and the bills that are being proposed in Congress presume that critical race theory is being taught in K through 12 education, which is a lie.
0: <laughs> right.
1: It's barely being taught in law school, okay? I, I mean, I, when, when, when this conversation kind of broke out, uh, Dr. Sooner, I, I started texting some of my law folks, you know, mm-hmm. folks who I know who practice law, black folks. I just asked them, you know, and I was like doing a, 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 a impromptu survey, you know, what do you think about Derrick Bell's work? Mm-hmm. And 90% of the law folks that I know that graduated from law school, many of them from the University of Memphis Law School, didn't know who Derrick Bell was. Wow. You know? it, so this is not even really being taught in law school, <laughs> let alone, you know, in, in, in most institutions of higher education or most classrooms. Mm-hmm. And it, dang sure ain't being taught in k through 12 education it's just not the case
0: Mm -hmm. and i think that's important to reiterate is that critical race theory as a theory right as a framework for understanding various structures in society is not being taught in k through 12 and as you mentioned not integrated in any you know way throughout you know higher education institutions but part of the bill that our governor passed and that other states also are passing as well specifically states something that you said so there it lists 14 different concepts that teachers will not be able to discuss and so uh, a few of them are you know that that one's race, that one race bears responsibilities for the past actions against another, that cannot be discussed, that the U- United States is fundamentally racist, right? That mm-hmm. cannot be discussed, and that a person is inherently privileged or oppressive due to their race.
1: Right.
0: And for most of these, even just these three that are kind of pulled out. You know, most K through 12 are not really going into these in-depth conversations about race, let alone racism in the United States.
1: And, you know, one of the hallmarks of critical race theory, according to Bell, would be what's called interest convergence, which is to say white folks ain't really moved to do anything on behalf of racial equity unless it somehow benefits the interest of the majority of the white people and case in point for me is Juneteenth, right? So mm-hmm. the Juneteenth holiday doesn't even become a holiday until white folks can also get off for Juneteenth and reap some, some of the benefits. But even as it relates to how these bills are being proposed and things of that nature, like they are proposing the bills in ways that benefit the majority of white folks because to not teach these complex, complicated and critical histories is to further embed and indoctrinate in the average citizen, these myths of American exceptionalism. Mm. These these lies about, you know, lost causes if you start talking about the Civil War and and the Confederacy and things of that nature. I saw a meme, Dr. Charles McKinney, who was the, Uh, The chair of the Africana Studies Department at Rose College, dear brother of mine, he shared a meme that somebody posted the other day and it says, you know, how do you, why do you think people are racist if they are saying you can't teach critical race theory in school? And the meme says something to the effect of, because they didn't do the same thing about teaching about the Confederacy in the school, right? Mm -hmm. And so you don't see this commitment to what's true. And this is where it gets real complicated. And this is why I think critical race theory is important because it's talking about the legal code and the inequities within the legal system. We conflate and confuse law with justice and truth. Mm. And, and these are not you know, uh, uh, interchangeable ideologies or terms here. Like there are times throughout the history of the country where the law was unjust. Absolutely. and rooted in something that was not true. Three-fifths compromise, if you were right, and all of these things. So, the, the a, 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 and the, another irony is that the racial anxieties, the insecurities of the dominant culture, which D'Angelo is calling white fragility, mm-hmm. <laughs> is literally on full display. It's like, we are so uh, anxious and unsettled about the potential of someone requiring people to discuss these harsh realities that we want to ostracize and marginalize and suppress them all together and put it into the legal code such that it is now illegal. I think it was a group in Nevada that were trying to require, I don't know if you heard of this Dr. Laborn trying to require the, the teachers in K through 12 to wear body cameras. Oh, wow. just no. yes, to verify that they were not teaching, <laughs> you know, the thing that we know most most institutions and, and, and organizations don't even have enough knowledge about uh, to teach. But these are these are the sad realities when you start talking about where we are as a cut as a country, as a community and as a culture. Because our commitment to myths and lies in order to sustain racial hierarchies, gender hierarchies, sexual orientation inequities and things of that nature is on full display and we are so committed and wed to these ideologies and philosophies that even when their lunacy and hypocrisy is on full display, we can't see it somebody said that Y'all don't want to teach critical race theory. Y'all want to teach hypocritical race theory.
0: <laughs> yes, I saw that. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, I think one of the points that you made about even just outlining um, Derek Bell's kind of the tenets that he outlined was thinking about how uh, this idea that Black folks can't be objective about yeah. race as if white people can sure. be objective about race. But since we have derased white folks, Right, so again, proving the point of how we think about race or who has a race and who doesn't, yes. um, within that as well.
1: Yes, and, and also the notion of, and this is something that uh, Pella gets into in that political article, real precisely about critical race theorists' objection to the notion of racial neutrality.
0: Mm.
1: That 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 somehow you know there's some race neutral standards of reasonableness that uh black folks are unable to accomplish because of our experience with racism but somehow white folks who have benefited from racial inequities are much more (laughs) much more reasonable right and so that's the other thing that i think was discovered as they interrogated some of the shortcomings of civil rights law and legislation it Mm -hmm. was that they had operated under the auspices that people would be reasonable as it relates to race and could be neutral. Mm -hmm. And it manifests itself rhetorically in the phrase, I don't see color, which is not only a lie because you stop at red lights, don't you? Uh, Or you slow down at yellow lights and you go at green lights. If you don't see color, how do you know what to do at a traffic light, right? So you know it's a lie that people don't see color or -hmm. else you would see that they don't coordinate some of their outfits, but so people do see color, right? What they were saying is, or trying to say is, I don't allow race to influence the decisions that I make. But every time the law started to challenge notions of racial inequity, what we saw is what Van Jones and others have called historically a white lash, which mm-hmm. manifest in what we ultimately seen at the insurrection on January the 6th, right? This is another form of the white lash where if the law in this case, an election of someone who seemed to be way too sympathetic to the values and the visions of black and brown folks is now about to lead what we are trying to call a democracy or a government, then we are willing to, and, and, and now Ibrahim X. Kendi has lined this out wonderfully well in his book, Stamp from the Beginning, uh, which is why I know some white folks were just in an uproar and continue to be in the uproar because he's able to document every time these black legislative advancements are made, white folks riot and kill. I mean, it's just, that's true to history. And the question would be, why wouldn't someone want that history to be taught mm-hmm. if what we are after is the truth? And again, I think what we see is we too often conflate justice, truth and law. But laws can be unjust and rooted in something that is less than truthful. So they aren't. They, they, they are Matter of fact, things Augustine, a black theologian from Africa, who said, "An unjust law is no law at all." So if we care about these values of truth and love and justice and equity and things of that nature, I think we would see ourselves responding differently than we have responded in in the current iterations of the conversation around critical race theory and and, and, uh, racial equity. Mm
0: -hmm, Absolutely. And you mentioned some of this, you know, white lash, as we could see on display in the January 6th insurrection. And I'm wondering, how do you make sense of um, all of the objections to critical race theory and how, what else might we expect happening along these lines as it pertains to critical race theory?
1: Um, I think it's hard to tell from a precise standpoint what to expect except for more resistance from white privileged institutions and organizations. Now, I, I wanna try to provide some, <laughs> what I'm unable to provide as a black person, some objectivity, right? <laughs> um, I, I do think that there have been times where Racial, racialized theories and ideologies have been deployed and weaponized in ways that were not nuanced enough or sophisticated enough to ground itself in what's true. Mm. So I think that there's some fairness to how people try to interrogate and analyze some of the rhetorics of what we would now call wokeness, right? I, I do think that there have been times where we haven't given enough credit to some of the particularities but race critical race theory proper accounts for these realities which is why they would concede any critical race theory would say any critical race theorist would would admit that the theory is evolving. Mm -hmm. So you know having said that I don't think that the Practitioners of critical race theory, proper, are any less human than any other theorist or practitioner, and so why wouldn't we be given the same amount of space? Mm. So when people do, you know, these these uh, other theories of, of of critiques of capitalism or critiques of socialism or, or critiques of uh, 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 gender inequity and things of that nature, you know, the feminists. You know, you know, uh, womanists tend to be given maybe not the womanists because they account for the racial realities, you know. But but if you if you remove race from the equation, people are generally given much more leverage and legroom mm-hmm. to work out their philosophies and ideologies without being held to the standard of perfection. Whereby critical race theory, since it's putting race front and center, and since most objective scholars would affirm that race is front and center in the development of what we now know to be the United States of America. And I'm talking about a white scholar who wrote one of the books that I think is the best written book on the development of the American system of capitalism. And that's Edward Baptist's book, uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, Lord have mercy, right? That's a white brother talking about how you don't have America become a superpower on an economic scale without the exploitation of black labor through enslavement. And the way that enslavement was coded into the legal system mm-hmm. and even the property rights of enslaved black folks by their enslavers is part and parcel of the development of the country. Like you don't get that white people can you know be, Objective and honest enough, why wouldn't we want to know that history if we care about the truth at all? Mm-hmm. So I I, I I won't say sympathize, but I do understand and in some instances identify with some of the erroneous arguments that are made on behalf of critical race theory or on behalf of in my in another. Part of my intersectional field, black liberation theology, right? So people don't know about black liberation theology. They don't know who James Cone is. They sure enough don't know who Albert Clegg is, and Albert Clegg is the one who coined the term black liberation theology. They don't know much about women's theology, they, especially the white evangelicals in the Southern Baptist Church that are trying to posit that critical race theory is somehow anti-Christian or anti-faith. They just don't know about these other, you know, or, or don't care enough about the truth injustice to give them a fair hearing or a fair reading you know you ultimately you you see the way that we are prone to be so tribal in our ideologies mm-hmm. that we lose all sense of uh, not cri- not just critical race theory but but critical thinking patterns And so we no longer care about the the, the substance of the truth. And we just argue along lines of our affiliation association or our desires for privilege. That's what I would push back, push back against no matter where it shows up. But when we are talking about the substantive discussions of the intersection of race and gender and politics and power, and for me, you know, rhetoric and religion, you have to deal with the truth insofar as. The preeminence of of race is, is concerned, and so you know that that's why I think critical race theory is one of the most important and impactful theoretical frameworks of the uh, of modern history,
0: actually. Mm -hmm. Oh, you have said a whole lot there for us to really think about and unpack. Um, Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll delve more into this conversation about critical race theory. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Earl Fisher, a fellow at the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change at the University of Memphis. So right before the break, you briefly have mentioned um, how, in particular, Southern Baptist Church, but we could think about other denominations as well, have um, really come out and talked about how critical race theory is directly in opposition to Christianity. And i really like to talk more about that. So since I know this is one of your areas of expertise thinking about religion, I'm wondering, can you kind of tell us more about what this standpoint says about, for instance, Southern Baptist Church, but other Christian denominations as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is, worthy of a deep exploration over a series of of weeks, you know, maybe months. I mean, this is, you know, seminar worth for sure. And the reason I say that is because the Southern Baptist Church has a particular history in relationship to slavery. It is most uh, well known for its support of enslavement as consistent with the gospel of Christianity or the gospel of Jesus that, that, that is supposed to be the foundation of Christianity. And the reason is more complex than that. And I even posted this several weeks ago just in thinking about it. Um, there are too many black preachers who were denouncing critical race theory even before it became a popular thing in Southern Baptist circles. And I could point that to the conversation we were having before the break where critical race theory is definitely anti the notion of racial neutrality. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: so when you start bringing in religion, what too many religionists, too many preachers and pastors and theologians attempt to do is describe a notion or understanding of who and how God is that does not take into account the social and political reality. Because the social and political reality of this world, the planet earth (laughs) over the last 500 years is that white supremacy is the dominating ideology. Mm-hmm. And so that's the social and political landscape. And I often say, if our theology or our religion does not take into account the social and political realities it's ultimately irrelevant. Mm. And so how can we claim to do religion righteously? Especially if we believe God is a God of love and liberation, how can we do that if we are willing to ignore or put on the shelf or the table, the most critical and crucial aspect of the social and the political landscape over the last 500 years, it just can't be done. But what so many black people have been conditioned to do is adopt and mimic and emulate the postures and the positions of white evangelicalism. So now we become white evangelicals in blackface. And from that posture, going back to again, one of the rules of racial standing, you are able to get high profile positions and platforms because you are the black man. And in some instances, the black woman articulating these same values that run counter to the liberation of black folks. And now you're doing it in the name of God. Mm. And you are taught to read and interpret these sacred and biblical texts from the vantage point of right-wing evangelicals, so much so that you quote them in your sermons and you val- val- validate and value their interpretations, and will reject any uh, counter arguments made on the same on, on the same playing field. So this is why it's complicated. This, this I, but again, I think Andre Johnson in that uh, article on religion dispatches that I mentioned in the previous segment is just doing some some great work describing the historical trajectory of the conversation on critical race theory and the, and, and the way that Southern Baptist attack on critical race theory predates this more common or, or this more contemporary recent, this more recent, this more recent discussion about critical race theory in in public discourse or what we see being manifest in some of the public policies.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting. And I'm glad you brought up this um, myth of racial neutrality, because I think oftentimes in the church, we think about it as particularly raced in certain ways, but then also race neutral in certain ways.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and, you know, as you were talking, I was just reflecting on, you know, growing up in church and how the sermons are often heard were very much divorced from the social and political context both of Jesus time yes as well as current times. Yes.
1: yeah i think that's again a manifestation of the the um, ubiquitous nature of white suprem- i often say that white evangelicalism and white supremacy are so closely intertwined you can't tell them apart mm-hmm. and since many of us are not sophisticated enough to tell them apart. Since many of us don't see the intersection of politics and religion and rhetoric, Mm -hmm. we can't righteously interpret biblical material. So we read it through the race neutral lens that was imposed upon us by those who are oppressing us to maintain their privilege through racial hierarchy. So now you say God doesn't see color. But at the same time, you were saying black folks are less than human and using a passage in Genesis chapter nine, which is ultimately called the ham doctrine, you say black folks were ordained by God to be enslaved by white people. When those of us who are in tuned and trained well enough to interrogate and interpret the scriptures for ourselves. No, no white people are really mentioned in the Bible at all, especially in the Old Testament. What you have are white folks sprinkled throughout the New Testament in relationship to Romans and Greeks. (laughs) So generally, the Bible is written by black folks to black folks or non-white folks, right? And and written to non-white folks, ancient Hebrew people living in Northeastern Africa, which we now identify as the Middle East, but you'll never find the term Middle East anywhere in the Bible because it's a geopolitical term that does not exist until white supremacy hits the globe, right? So Mm -hmm. you you never hear the term Middle East, Right. These are, these are people living in the area of Palestine, and to my Zionists out there who might want to challenge me, bring it on, because we know Israel as a country does not exist until 1948, and we know that there are some political expedience and impropriety associated with that development as well, but most people don't know this, Dr. Labuan, so mm-hmm. since they don't know it, they are reading this text through the lens and the prism of white evangelicals who are so closely aligned with white supremacists, we can't tell them apart. And so the Southern Baptist just becomes this template or this synecdoche, this symbol that represents the wider spectrum of white evangelicalism. But it's complicated because now you have so many black people who were introduced to the Christian faith, not in terms of its origins and its roots, of non-white people in Northeastern Africa, okay? (laughs) But are rooted or introduced to it through the prism of this Protestant Catholic, uh, uh, this this, I wanna say Catholic diaspora, but I don't know if that would be fair because I don't wanna conflate the terms. When we start talking about diaspora, which simply means the scattering, most often we associate the diaspora with the sons and daughters of Africa who have been spread across the globe because of the uh, European slave trade. I hate when people call it the transatlantic slave trade because the transatlantic didn't enslave anybody, the Mm -hmm. European slave trade. And so I'm saying Catholic diaspora insofar as Rome becomes the center of the Christian church through Emperor Constantine, which makes it ironic because Christianity at its origin is a revolutionary religion that is revolting against the Roman Empire. Again, all of these are things that make this a seminar study, right? Because you can't can't give people a 15 second or 15 minute crash course into some of the complexities of the intersection of what Dr. Andre Johnson has coined rhetoric, race and religion. It -hmm. requires some deep seated study and reflection and some confrontation with the ways in which the society and our political landscape has been utilized and weaponized by religious ideologies and advance these causes of inequity and injustice. So much so that now people of color, black folks are advocating for these things, not even knowing that we're advocating against our own interest, and then slapping this notion of God on top of it to give it even further authority and legitimacy.
0: Mm-hmm you have given us so much (laughs) gave us you know we will have to really i encourage all the listeners to really explore more as you mentioned i mean that was so much just in that short time that obviously like you said could be not just a seminar but of course a whole degree (laughs) right um but for even just bringing some of some of these kind of themes and strands out to us and i just want to touch on one thing that really stood out to me um, when you were talking about the European slave trade, right, just mentioning that. And I think that's just a a prime example. We talk about the transatlantic slave trade and which then erases both the people and the power, which critical race theory is all about bringing back the power, right, Mm -hmm. a power analysis into contemporary society and whatever time period someone might be using a critical race theory framework yeah. to examine. And so I think that's just like one way, again, how we try to create uh, or people in power try to create a race neutral language or yes. a power um, erasing language. Which or they a power
1: in- erasing or quote unquote neutral religion, which is what we try to posture Christianity to be, which is blasphemy to the faith. Mm -hmm. See, if I can, just for a second, Dr. Laborn. this is why rhetoric is so important. One of my fundamental claims is that all theology is experiential, contextual, and rhetorical, that Mm -hmm. we experience it through the human condition, that that experience takes place in a social, political, chronological, and geographical or cultural context, Mm -hmm. and that we use rhetoric to try to communicate it. What happens in white evangelicalism as it relates to the Black experience is that Black folks are conditioned to neglect, ignore, diminish, and devalue our own social, political, geographical, and cultural context, Mm -hmm. And imposed with the experience of white privileged folks who now tell us that race don't matter. So we say race don't matter. And it erases our experience and the particularities of that experience. And it's all about power. So I say all theology is political because ultimately it's concerned about power dynamics and how we negotiate these power dynamics. So when people miss that, to to the point that I think you were making, it, it opens the door for so much more exploitation and degradation and dehumanization because now you can use these coded terms like transatlantic slave trade. Devoid of the political realities and the heinous notions of power dynamics and decisions that were made by people Mm -hmm. to dehumanize and enslave people or the same thing that you do not just with the transatlantic slave trade, the same thing you do with the Christian church, you know, the same things we do with uh the Revolutionary War, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Or or, or, uh, a city set on a hill or manifest destiny or uh, what a lot of people don't know about what the Pope wrote in terms of uh, the declarations of of, of the Pope, the declarations of discovery. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these ways, all of these terms and these phrases are ways that we try to depoliticize certain things because when you add the political realities, why I appreciate sociologists like yourself, while we appreciate people who do political science and other theorists, you know, you appreciate this because it brings us closer to what's true.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think that's one thread that you've really been um, weaving throughout our conversation, which is, you know, this search for the truth or commitment to the truth. And as you kind of mentioned throughout, you know, why wouldn't we want to know, history as it actually was, right, in its completeness, um, in, you know, all of its tragedies and atrocities, right, why wouldn't we want to know these histories if we are committed to the truth, which right. then begs the question, are we committed to the truth?
1: Well, I think the simple answer is no, we're committed to power and privilege, mm-hmm. and there are a small percentage of people who have them, and they're trying to maintain them. They have a monopoly on them, and they are conditioned ideologically and philosophically and practically by those privileges and that power. And the masses of us who are disempowered or unempowered or lacking power and lacking privilege, underprivileged, unprivileged have to organize and advocate and mobilize and fight like, I th- I, I'm gonna say this, I think you'll forgive me, fight like hell uh, <laughs> to, to get to get these um social conditions to become more equitable. And so mm-hmm. the short answer is no. And I, but I don't associate that just with one particular group. It goes back to some of what I was saying about how human all of us are. Mm-hmm. And how, this, this is one of the things I think is a benefit of a righteous and revolutionary religion and a sensitive spirituality. That it grounds us in these reflections of ourselves such that we recognize our own convictions and impulses and conditionings as it relates to privilege and power. This is why I think the Bill Cosby episode, I'm saying his name now, I mean, you know, uh, this is why I think that episode is so telling because you see people who haven't read the dispositions, you see people who haven't read the details of why his case was overturned Mm -hmm. And, and, and impulsively, impulsively identifying with him because he's a black male, uh, as if black males can't commit rape and as if he didn't admit as much in the deposition, Mm -hmm. but, but these impulses that all of us have, when you don't have the spiritual maturity to reflect upon that you respond to these impulses because you're after certain privileges. So maybe some of us uh, voyeuristically see ourselves through the power and privilege of Heathcliff Huxtable, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even if it's not Bill Cosby, but not only that, the ways in which some of us can try to identify wholesale with victims without identifying the necessary nuances therein too, because now, it's possible to use victimology, if you will, as a means of getting access to privilege and power. Mm-hmm. And so now you don't wanna hold yourself accountable to that and say, yes, there was a legal error. And if we care anything about justice, we have to be consistent in how we apply that. And he gets off on the technicality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I object to it, I think it's trash, but I also understand the nuance between somebody being innocent versus somebody having a ruling Mm overturned. And and, and the point that I'm trying to make here, Dr. LeBron is that spirituality for me, this is why I live at the intersection of scholarship spirituality and social justice or social activism. It is spirituality for me. It is that righteous revolutionary religion that I refer to as Christianity or the religion of the black Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth that keeps me grounded and recognizing that I too can be subject to those impulses and desires for privilege and power and want to maintain them and manipulate them in ways that sustain my position or my platform in a society. Mm -hmm. And so I ultimately have to ask myself the questions of commitment relative to what Malcolm said. I am for truth no matter who is speaking it. And I'm for justice no matter who is for or against. Now, what I would add as an addendum to Malcolm, even when it's against me, I at least got to be honest enough to say, hey, I was wrong, you know, and justice is not on my side in this regard. This is where critical race theory, uh, you know, Black liberation theology, womanist theology, Black feminism, all of our wonderful ideologies and theoretical frameworks, this is where I feel like they are at their best when they say to us, yeah, even if it's me, Mm. even if it's me, wrong is wrong. Guilty is guilty. Evil is evil. Justice is justice. Love is love. Mercy is mercy. And all of us experience a complex relationship with all of these things.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that piece of even if it's me really gets to the core of the issue, which is that most of us do not have that maturity to actually accept when it is me. Right. Right. And so that is where the issue comes in, because as you have um, talked about throughout our whole conversation, you know, we have the, the natural human desire to protect our own interests, to protect ourselves, to cleave to, you know, tribalism of a variety of different types of affiliations. And so there is something very human in us that doesn't want to accept those consequences and those outcomes. Uh, But if indeed we are committed to truth and justice, then it does require a different orientation to the world and to one another as well.
1: Yes, yes. Not too much to add to that except for amen.
0: (laughs) Well, Dr. Earl Fisher, it has been a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. You have downloaded so much information, um, so many great resources that you've mentioned throughout. So I hope folks get a chance to actually look into them um, and actually, you know, read them over and digest them as well.
1: I want to say thanks, uh, Dr. Suna Labor for having a brother like me on to talk about this. I know you know, you know, more scholars than we can count and there are people who, are well-equipped to have this conversation. I don't take it lightly that you invited me on this let's grab some coffee type deal. So salute to you for doing this and the work that you're doing in the academy and throughout uh, the the world and and the country. And so uh, I look forward to uh, sharing this conversation with other people. And I look forward to listening to some of the other conversations that you'll have in the future.
0: All right, thank you so much.
1: Appreciate it, thank you.
0: Thank you again to Dr. Earl Fisher for this conversation this morning. Again, so many resources that he shared, especially at the top of the show. So if you tuned in late, definitely have to check out the replay on wyxr.org or wherever you stream podcasts. This episode will also be available on Let's Grab Coffee on Apple, Spotify. And so many resources, check it out at the beginning. I was trying to keep a list of all the titles and names of scholars that he mentioned. Um, So I myself will have to go back and listen and grab those resources as well. Again, so much to talk about with critical race theory and also its intersections both with education as we're thinking about um, the law that Governor Bill Lee signed and that will be taking effect this fall, still waiting to see um, guidelines that will be offered to educators from the department of education, for really understanding um, what this law means um, in the classroom. Uh, But also just thinking about, of course, critical race theory and its intersection with religion, which we spent a lot of time talking about as well. So a lot to think about on this on this Saturday but a very important conversation to have and for today's positive note I actually just want to repeat the quote that Dr. Fisher shared from Malcolm X which says I'm for truth no matter who tells it I'm for justice no matter who it is for or against I'm a human being first and foremost, and as such, I'm for whoever and whatever benefits humanity as a whole. Thank you again for joining me this Saturday morning. I'm Sana, and this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM.